Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this end-of-term episode... We'll be looking back on the latest Brexit developments this week and what or might not happen over the summer break. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, and Philip Stevens, our chief political commentator. Thank you both for joining. So the Brexit talks began in Brussels again this week with David Davis going head-to-head with Michelle Barney about some of the details for the UK's withdrawal from the bloc. But little progress appears to have been made. Those thorny issues of citizens' rights, the exit bill and the role of the European Court of Justice have stymied progress. Meanwhile, Liam Fox, the International Trade Secretary, has been talking up the opportunities for Brexit Britain after it leaves the EU and Theresa May met with business leaders in Downing Street again. George Parker, let's begin with the Brexit talks. These things were always going to be full of drama. Both sides, it's in their interest to say it's all very difficult and the other side aren't getting any concessions. But the press conference between Mr Davis and Mr Barney on the other side really seemed to hint that Brussels and Britain are on just different pages on these key issues. Is that the rhetoric or is that the reality? Well, you've always got to aim off a bit, haven't you, with the rhetoric in these negotiations. I think they're closer together than they will allow in public on the question of citizens' rights, although Mr Barnier says we're still on different pages on that. The big question, of course, is on the money, the so-called Brexit bill and the liabilities, where there hasn't really been anything beyond the initial skirmishes on that. The British haven't produced a paper on how they think this should be approached. And there's a good reason for that, because the money is probably the single strongest negotiating card that the British have to play in this negotiation. They're holding it back until the last minute. And I predict in the end, actually, we might come up with a reasonably generous settlement to open the door to that trade deal that we're hoping for. Some people have said, why did the UK not put forward its prospectus on the money? Because Mr Barney said the UK hasn't put anything forward. Is that just keeping cards close or is that a symptom of Whitehall not being ready for this? <laughs> well, there's definitely an element of Whitehall not being ready for a whole load of parts of the Brexit. In fact, they don't actually have a plan of what they want Brexit to look like. So that's a fairly fundamental problem. But on the question of money, they do want to get a sort of detailed understanding of exactly what it is that the European Commission is looking at. Because at the end of the day, what this will be about is agreeing the framework for the final bill rather than putting an actual number on it early on in the process because at the end of the day the big number is the rabbit that's pulled out of the hat. Philip Stevens, what did you make of what happened this week? Do you agree with George that things are actually better in terms of our positions behind the scenes even if the detail is not quite there yet? Well I think there are two things going on here. One, as George says, on some of these issues and citizenship is one, there are some really, really difficult, complex legal issues, as well as issues of fairness, equity to be settled. So there are some genuine technical differences. I think on the question of the money, a lot of people look at the money from the wrong end of the telescope. Part of the money will be our exit bill. But part of the money will be what we're prepared to continue to pay during, for example, a transition period of, and we heard this week, perhaps of two or three years. And there are certain parts of the EU club that we may want to belong to even after we've left the EU. So there'll be membership subscriptions. And these tend all to get lumped into one great pot. 
And you can't really say what the amount will be until you know how long Britain would remain, for example, in the single market after we've exited. And of course, all this is political based as well about what is sellable at home to the Conservative Party and the 52% of Eurosceptics. And I think splitting those two off is quite key from that because trying to dress up the exit bill as the future membership is easier for Theresa May than saying, well, we're actually having to pay 60 billion well, yeah, euros. I'd say it's not dressing up, though. Part of it will be a bill for existing liabilities, but it's not dressing up. Part of it will be where we want to participate in future. As for the past liabilities, whatever Boris Johnson and others say about uh, the EU whistling for it, my understanding is that the British lawyers have already reached a conclusion. The government's own lawyers have already told ministers they are going to have to pay up as Britain meets its international obligations. Ministers have been told we can't break international law. So in the end, and I think some of the numbers are probably known, we will be paying up for these European pensions and the rest, whatever the hardline Brexiteers say. Now, on the ECJ, George, this is where it gets even more complicated again after the citizens' rights, because Theresa May was very clear in her Lancaster House speech, which has set the trajectory for the Brexit talks, where she said there will be no ECJ jurisdiction in the UK after we leave. And you could say, fair enough, we're going to be leaving the bloc, and therefore, why should a foreign court have say over our land? But Mr Barnier was quite clear this week that for those EU citizens in Britain, he wants the ECJ to be overseeing their rights. That does seem a pretty big sticking point there. And I can't really see from a British perspective how you could allow the ECJ to still have those kind of powers after we've left, after some kind of transition. Well, I agree with that. Frankly, I don't think Michel Barnier thinks that's a viable proposition either. This is either. the drama. This element, is the drama. And they need to trade this off. The trade there to be done is that the British accept as we inevitably will, that the cut-off date for EU citizens' rights is the moment we leave the European Union in March 2019, not the moment we triggered the Article 50 process in 2017. And in exchange, Michel Barnier will drop what I think is a frankly fairly ludicrous idea that European citizens will be able to go to the European court to enforce their rights in the UK ad infinitum. I mean, that's not an acceptable procedure. And I think even some judges in the European court accept that Britain isn't a colony of the EU. I half agree, but only half, because if you're in the position of the EU or, say, the German government, it's all very well the British government saying, well, look, we'll make sure that German citizens in Britain have the rights that they would have had as EU citizens continuing indefinitely. But how do we know that, say, Boris Johnson doesn't become prime minister in the next two or three years and say, oh, well, to hell with that. They can whistle for that. I'm changing the law. I'm taking these rights away. So... There has to be a tribunal of sorts which would arbitrate in such circumstances. And I think the answer is a European court-like tribunal with a British judge or two or three included. Yes, and I think actually the other way of doing this is that this citizen's right thing will be part of the withdrawal agreement. It will be an international treaty and therefore that will be enforceable through some sort of enforcement international tribunal mechanism of the kind Philip's just been describing. George, let's talk about transition. Now, Philip touched on this this week and this seems to be where there's been a bit of movement. Obviously, we're sort of reading the runes here about what's actually going on in the government. But 
there seems to be a broad acknowledgement across the government that there needs to be a transition period because there were some in the cabinet, people like Liam Fox, the Trade Secretary, and Michael Gove and possibly Boris Johnson, who actually, if we don't need a transition, we can just get to March 2019 and we walk away and law be fine. Whereas the argument made by Philip Hammond and Damien Green, and I think actually David Davis as well, has been we need to have a glide path out of the EU so we aren't marched 2019, don't just leave. And that argument seems to have won. And Philip Hammond put forward this idea of a two plus two transition, which is two years of talks, which we're in the middle of now, plus another two years at least of transition before you get there. What are you picking up on where the debate is on that at the moment? And of course, we'll come to Philip on a moment about this. It's not just what we want, it's what they're going to give us as well. Well, exactly. So I think you're right. Philip Hammond and others have won the arguments on this. Um, the election changed everything. Theresa May has been forced off the hard Brexit path that she wanted to follow. The parliamentary arithmetic won't allow her to go down that very hard route that she wanted to follow either. And as a result, there's been a big change in the cabinet. So you're right, David Davison actually does get this. He has formed quite an interesting alliance with Philip Hammond to press for a more pro-business. You couldn't have expected that this really? time last no, year. indeed. And so on the pro-business side of things, and the Brexiteers, frankly, are in retreat. You know, they've had to accept that this so-called implementation phase, which was conceived as just being a few months while the customs systems are put in place and a few computer tweaks are made, is going to be something much more significant, probably lasting two or three years. A transition period which will look very much like our existing EU membership, EU budget contributions, ECJ rulings, free movement continuing. And the nightmare of the Brexiteers, which they're having to swallow at the moment, is this transition period becomes semi-permanent. Now, they will demand, and I think the Prime Minister will give them some sort of legal cut-off date at which point the transition ends. But as Matthew Paris was writing in The Spectator this week, you can always extend transitional periods and change the law. Yes, I think the argument is being won, and it's being won not because Philip Hammond is necessarily the most eloquent of politicians. It's won because it's reality. And what's happening is the hardline Brexiteers are being forced to face up to choices which hitherto they've refused to admit. That's not to say, though, that these hardline Brexiteers have given up completely. There are still those in the cabinet who are going around saying, look, it's not going to be as bad as everyone says and we should just get on with it and get out, take the hit now to the extent there is an economic hit and be in better shape by the time we have to fight another election. And that's still heard in the cabinet and was heard in the cabinet this week. But I think the attrition that we're seeing. And I think the prime minister being pushed in that direction means that they will have to give way on the transition. What they haven't yet, and I don't think anyone in the government has yet accepted or internalised, is, as George says, the transition is going to be just like membership but without any say in any of the decisions. And this is the politically difficult thing, isn't it? Because the 52% who voted to leave the EU, there was a great moment on Question Time quite recently when David Dimbleby asked the audience, how long do you think Brexit's going to take? And half the audience thought we'd already left the EU, for example. And so people's perception on where we're at in this is very different, I think, to reality. And the danger is we get to... Brexit Day on March 2019, actually, nothing changes. Now, from the business side, that's exactly what they want to see. But from that 52% who wanted to see border controls, money stopping, all the things that you mentioned, that gets a bit difficult. And I assume the Prime Minister's calculation is, look, if we still say to people it's all wrapped up by the next election, assuming that's in 2022, then she can get away with that. Do you think she can, George? 
Well, I mean, that's the trade-off that she's going to make. She's going to offer this final cut-off date. But the fear, the back of the minds of people who voted Leave, but particularly in the minds of the people Philip was describing, the cabinet who were passionate about it... The betrayal. ...will be about the betrayal. And when you get to 2022, will we make that transition from the transition to the end state? Because Philip Hammond quite rightly is saying, well, hang on, before we move out of this transition deal, I want to see proof that all these great trade deals that Liam Fox has lined up will more than offset the damage to our trade with our main trading partner in the European Union. Now, at some point, we're going to have to grasp that nettle. And of course, the Ramonas, of course, another thing in the studio will count ourselves as that, will think, well, actually, are we ever going to make that transition? And in the end, will the public be presented with Britain being in the Norway-style arrangement with the EU, where, as Philip said, no influence, no votes, worst of all worlds, and think, well, what have we done this for? And will eventually people be talking about thinking about it again? Both practically and Politically, Philip, do you think there's much chance of that sort of the permanent transition? I think there is. I don't agree with George that the Norway model is the worst of all worlds because I think the worst of all worlds would be crashing out, having no deal whatsoever. So I think confronted with a choice, people might say, actually, I prefer this sort of pseudo-membership of the EU to the chaos and recession and rises in unemployment that would follow crashing out. But I do think that this reality imposing itself is going to be the story of the next six months or so. The question is whether the hardline Brexiteers can gather themselves together and launch another fight. Now, it was striking this week that Liam Fox, who on the one hand said he would accept a transition, made it very clear that remaining in the customs union or remaining in the single market was, in his view, remaining within the EU. Not true, of course, because Norway's outside of the EU and Turkey has a customs arrangement outside the EU. But they are drawing lines in the sand, as it were. One other thing, though, there are papers circulating in Whitehall at the moment saying, look, whatever we think about when we should come out, we don't have the administrative capability to run our own affairs anyway. The idea, I was told this week, that the Home Office could take back control of our immigration policy within two years, or perhaps even in four or five years, was, quote, laughable. This all centres around a meeting, George, that Theresa May had with business leaders. So after spending the first year for office shunning business as much as possible and almost always kicking them at every opportunity, there's a warm embrace in this Theresa May 2.0. So we had the Chevening meeting a couple of weeks ago. We had a similar meeting on Thursday. What happened? Well, I was speaking to one of the business attendees at this meeting who was saying that you wait a year for a meeting to come along and suddenly there's a whole load of, <laughs> a load of them coming along. And it's been a complete crashing of gears as far as Theresa May is concerned, having tried to establish the Tory party as the party of working class and not the political wing of the city and big business. Now she's inviting them in for talks around the cabinet table. Very David Cameron of her. Indeed. And I've told the talks were constructive. Business obviously had a lot to get off its chest since they haven't been listened to for the last year, particularly on the question of the transition deal we've just been discussing. But I'm told the talks actually went quite well. These meetings are going to take place on a quarterly basis. And Theresa May, I think, privately acknowledges that she made a mistake. The Conservative Party needs to work with business, needs to work with everyone, frankly, to deliver some sort of consensus on Brexit. But you've got to take business with you, otherwise it's going to be a disaster. Yes, I think that's it. I mean, the Conservative Party has always been the party, if you like, of enterprise and business. And if it breaks decisively with big and small businesses over the issue of Brexit, then it's future electoral prospect will be dim indeed. What I think now has to happen, because we're looking to October, November, I think, as the crunch point in this process, 
And the government really does have to have a clear, decisive position on whether it's going to go for the sort of transition we've been discussing. The one business wants. The one business wants. And if it does, if that happens, then I think the discussions about citizenship and about the money suddenly become a lot easier, as it were. One of the reasons that the European Commissioner, Mr Barnier, are frustrated is that they think the British government hasn't really taken position on the substantial issues of the future relationship. And they admit it's quite hard to talk about these smaller issues of citizenship and money without such a clear British government position. Well, that brings us very nicely on to Parliament, which is going to summer recess now, and all the MPs are floating back to their constituencies for a well-deserved break. They'll get some sunshine cold or warm for Seco and crucially some thinking time because everyone who's been involved in politics is relieved to have just a bit of respite from this but something always fills up the news cycle in the summer months George and I think the question is really Theresa May's got quite a long holiday this year three weeks and will be doing some thinking herself here about sure about her position how long she's going to be there but as Philip said to make some very crucial decisions about Brexit because when we come back after the summer things are going to move pretty quickly we've got that two week parliamentary session where the great repeal bill sorry the repeal bill is now going to arrive then we have party conference season which is a test for her and then at the end of October got that crucial EU summit where it's really she's going to have to say about what transition is going to look like and well what Britain's strategy is. Yeah it's going to be a very interesting session when they come back after the summer break so yes there's a short session where they'll be discussing the repeal bill which will be the first time that this new parliament has probably got stuck into Brexit so that's a dangerous moment. You have to hope that her three-week walking holiday in the Alps doesn't result in any of the more slightly questionable decisions of the kind she took on her walking holiday in Snowdonia and the early election. But, I mean, they are worried about what's going to happen. I bumped into a whip just on the last day, actually, in the, who was breathing a huge sigh of relief. They got through to the summer recess without losing a single vote since the election. I said, well, you haven't you, had any you, votes. You've only had seven. He said, don't be stupid. We've had nine. So the nine <laughs> votes, which they didn't lose. But the votes will be coming thick and fast when we get back. That's dangerous. And as you say, the September leading into the conference will be a dangerous month because the leadership contenders or people who fancy their chances of succeeding Theresa May will no doubt be starting to make slightly disloyal speeches, rocking the boat. I think what's been interesting, actually, in the last few weeks, we've seen that Theresa May has stabilised her position a bit in the House of Commons. The party has realised that they've actually got to stick with her. But the more her position's become more stable, the more that's unsettled people like David Davis, who think this could be their chance and don't want to miss it this time. So the Tory party knows what it needs to do. It needs to show discipline. It needs to stick together. But um, once the issue of Europe and personal ambition are mixed up with the Tory party, sensible decisions aren't always what you get. This is the very curious thing because the immediate aftermath of the election, it was so chaotic and so sort of mad that nobody would have dared try to move against her then. But now they actually think, well, things have calmed down a bit. Now we can knife her. That seems to be sort of... That was basically it. Yeah, I mean, it's immediately after the election, the only person stupid enough to rock the boat was Boris Johnson, who went on manoeuvres before being told in no certain terms that it was incredibly stupid. Uh, he then quietened down. Everyone quietened down for a bit. But then as it looked like she was finally getting her act together, that was when the trouble started for her. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get a lot more of that in the autumn. So Philip, Theresa May has obviously made it through to the summer, which is in some ways a great achievement, given what a precarious position she was in after the election. Do you think she's going to make it through the autumn to the end of the year? I think if Theresa May wants to make it, to the end of the year, she can, simply because none of those, David Davis, Boris Johnson, Liam Fox, perhaps none of those who want her job can afford to actually wield the knife 
Michael Heseltine discovered that when he brought down Margaret Thatcher all those years ago. So if she wants to stay, she can. But one of the most interesting pieces of news, I think, of the last few weeks has been that the Prime Minister now, most evenings, not every evening, I'm told, goes home from number 10 to Maidenhead to sleep in her own house, in her own bed, as it were. That says to me, here is a Prime Minister who is psychologically, at least, beginning to detach herself from her office. So the question for me will be, if things do indeed get rough again in the autumn, Will Mrs May say to herself, well, look, I've done my duty. I've tried to hold things together, but this party is ungovernable. So I'm going to leave it to the Boris Johnsons to clean up the mess that they're creating. <laughs> I think that would be a very bold decision if she did do that. But I think, George, the thing is, there's actually everybody, aside from those characters we've mentioned now, they really want her to stay until the end of Brexit because it's going to be a bumpy period. And she told the 1922 committee, I got us into this mess, I'm going to get out of it. And whoever, if there was someone to step in now, they'd have a pretty awful time. And the party wants that regeneration time as well because everyone's talking about this next generation of MPs to look to and they need to be brought up somehow so I suppose the question is if she makes it through conference if she stays semi-detached to her office for the duration can she do a reshuffle because at some point that's the only thing she can really do to begin that renewal process the Tories have to do if they've got any chance of winning the next general election. I think a reshuffle in the current situation would be incredibly dangerous for her. She's being urged by members of the 1922 backbench committee to crack some heads and shows the boss Look, she's in a precarious position. I don't think the country's crying out for a reshuffle. Frankly, the ministers who are in their jobs weren't allowed to do their jobs in the last year by Theresa May because she had these two chiefs of staff who basically cracked down on any initiative. So I think ministers should be allowed to get on with their jobs. But in exchange, she should expect loyalty from them. Whether she's going to get it in the autumn is another question. Then on the other side of the fence, Philip, Jeremy Corbyn is hitting the road again for the third summer in a row. He's going on the campaign trail because he's had two leadership contests over the past couple of years. And he's obviously in the habit every August of getting on a bus and going up and down the country. So he's going on a tour of dozens of marginal seats to try and keep up support and keep up the momentum towards his side. And where do you see Labour's position being at the moment going into the autumn? I think on Brexit, Corbyn will take a completely unprincipled position, which is, as during the general election, he will be both for and against it simultaneously. And as the repeal bill goes through the House of Commons, the Labour Party will look for ways to ferment rebellions to trip over the government. What Corbyn hopes, above all else, is that the process political paralysis forces a general election, a leadership contest, for example, another good reason why the Tories, mm. I think, should avoid one, in my view, would force a general election, not because constitutionally it's essential, but I think the nation would not stand by and let the prime minister be replaced and not demand a general election. That's what Corbyn's banking on. He's banking on that keeping the energy and momentum that we saw in the general election going and praying, if you like, that there'll be a general election before next summer, when, who knows, he may not be quite the sort of shining star in the firmament that he looks today. Yeah, funny if I was speaking to one of Corbyn's advisors this week who was saying that we've been very careful not to call for a general election or look like we want one, not just because Brenda in Bristol won't be very happy about it, but also because the longer we allow the Tories to wallow around with no majority, the more damage they'll do themselves. 
Nevertheless, there are a number of MPs on the Labour and Tory side who are going to spend part of their summer holidays knocking on doors in their constituencies, you know, just a couple of months after an election, which shows how febrile the situation is and how lots of people do expect the possibility of an early election. And the thing for the Tories as well, in particular, the leadership question is all those MPs will go back and they will see their constituency chairman and the committees of their local associations. I think a lot of them will probably be quite angry about Theresa May and about the situation. And that, again, as those infamous words from David Liddington said, this kind of summer plotting in the heat, you can certainly see more of that happening. But Jeremy Corbyn seems to be in a pretty good position for going into the conference now and his place in the party. Last thing, George, the big exciting news this week, of course, was Vince Cable. Who, oh, yes. yes, who unopposed became leader of the Liberal Democrats. The sage of Twickenham has finally made it to the top of his party. Are we going to see the yellow bird taking flight once again? Well, it's early days, I would say, to start predicting a Lib Dem resurgence. <laughs> but um, you could map out a scenario where the Conservative Party blows itself up over Europe. The Labour Party finds itself in office under Jeremy Corbyn and things go pear-shaped pretty quickly. And then... In amongst that political chaos, you could imagine there being, you know, does Britain have its Macron moment? Is there suddenly a yearning for a technocratic government of the centre? And it's interesting, Vince Cable talks about how the Liberal Democrats could be part of that formation. I think even Vince Cable probably doesn't think that they are that vehicle for the Macron moment. But we're in weird uh, political times and anyone who predicts the demise or indeed the rise of the Liberal Democrats, probably the crystal ball starts to get a bit cloudy. The important thing about Vince Cable is that he has a presence of recognition beyond his party. The problem with his predecessor was that he was just another liberal Democrat. Vince Cable, partly because of his sort of celebrity TV appearances on Strictly Come Dancing, but also because he's a big beast politician. So if we do see the fracturing of politics that George mentioned, then I think he would be well-placed to pick up votes, both from moderate Labour people disenchanted with Mr Corbyn and also from the Tory left. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you to George and Philip for joining. Over the summer months, we're going to be doing a series of special episodes looking at some policy areas. So stepping back from the news agenda and look at some of the key issues facing Britain, where the parties stand and what can be done about them. So join us next week for our first instalment of that. Until then, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.